1: I just finished having the pleasure to interview Dr. Christopher Shannon about his book, co-authored with Christopher Bloom, The as Pilgrimage, Narrative, Tradition, and the Renewal of Catholic History. Now, this was, to me, a very interesting book, and this is kind of, a, in a sense, an experiment for our channel. Uh, usually, I am looking at books uh, that are written about Christians, right? Christian studies, it's focusing on Christianity or how Christians have been interacting with non-Christians, something about people studying Christians. This book's a little bit different because it's not so much written about Christianity as within Christianity, particularly the Catholic tradition of Christianity. And in this book, uh, Dr. Shannon and Dr. Bloom explore what it in a sense means to be a Catholic historian and how being a Catholic historian might be different uh, from being another kind of historian. And um, I thought this was was an interesting book, and I'm hoping that for those of you who um, are not uh, Catholics... Uh, that you'll still will get something out of it. I think there's a lot to be gotten out of it because it does raise a different kind of understanding of what history is. And I'm hoping that people will enjoy this and I'll be able to do more such interviews within a tradition as as opposed to just be about a tradition. So uh, without further ado, uh, please enjoy the interview with Dr. Shannon. Unfortunately, Dr. Um, Bloom was not able to join us. So with that, uh, please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Christopher Shannon about his new book, The Past is Pilgrimage, which he co-authored with Dr. Christopher Bloom, who unfortunately is not able to be with us today. Uh, This is really a fascinating book, and I want to welcome Dr. Shannon, or I'm sorry, Chris, to the show. Well, uh, thank you, Frank. Thank you for having me. Oh well, thank you for joining us and taking all this time, especially when you're you're so busy. So I yeah. wonder if we could begin the interview by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay.
0: Um, well, i uh, I guess I consider myself an upstate New Yorker. Uh, First, not quite by birth. I was born in uh, Newburgh, New York, but uh, pretty much grew up in Rochester, New York. Um, and uh, attended my right, you know childhood and teen years uh, attended Catholic schools and then went away to college for a little bit at uh, Notre Dame stint but my undergraduate education uh, was mostly at the University of Rochester which is where I grew up and there I was very fortunate to have uh, learned from the person I considered to be the greatest American historian of the 20th century Christopher Lasch, uh the kind of profound influence on uh, on me and inspired me to go to grad school I I attended Yale University in their American Studies program there, uh, which again was a very uh, kind of uh, eye-opening and enriching experience, and uh, then uh, worked uh, at various uh, universities over the next uh, few years uh, after graduation uh, until I finally arrived at Christendom College in uh, 2004, and I've been there uh, ever since. Uh, My... uh, my field, uh, I guess then as uh, now, was primarily uh, American intellectual history. So this book is in some ways a bit of a departure, though uh, also a bit of a kind of a reflection of that. But my work uh, in graduate school and since then has been largely in, in American intellectual history, particularly uh, looking at the rise of the culture concept in uh, American social thought, anthropological idea of culture and here's one kind of connection to the book Is what I found in, in looking at that uh, as a development of the idea is that uh, secular intellectuals were in the 20th century turning to culture for very much as a kind of a substitute for religion uh, uh, substitute for kind of religious notions of tradition uh, something that could provide unity that, that modernity didn't seem to be able uh, do, to do And then in these books uh, the first book, Conspicuous Criticism, and the second book, Who Made for Differences, I kind of show how this modern secular attempt to provide a kind of alternative uh, to religion really kind of failed in its own terms, and that's intellectually, you um, know, in modernity has not, in a sense, been able to hold it t- together. And uh, that's been kind of my main, uh, my main uh, scholarly work before uh, this book here.
1: Oh, excellent, excellent. Is there any particular reason you were drawn to that question? Um, well, I guess uh, partly from—I I guess we could
0: say maybe my own, uh, my own faith uh, as a Catholic trying to make sense of uh, modernity, and uh, reading, been largely under the, the mentorship of Christopher Lash, reading a lot of secular intellectuals that really saw uh, uh, the kind of consequences of the assets of modernity and saw how all the things that had once held people together seemed to be Became more Catholic. I thought, Wow, uh, my Catholicism isn't just my, my personal belief or something. That it could actually help to inform my work. And that's you know, that was the real. You know, after Christopher Lash, it was uh, reading Alistair McIntyre
1: Uh, interesting. Usually in this New Books Network, we're looking at books, uh, New Books in Christian Studies, we're looking at books um, about Christians. And it's not always yeah. clear what religious perspective the author is taking. In, in a sense, in secular academia, we're not really supposed to uh, maybe reveal that. But what made this book so interesting to me, and one reason I, I'm glad you were able to make time to interview with us, is the book you're working on, or The Pastors Pilgrimage, is a book about being a, a Catholic Christian um, yeah. Historians, so I wonder then if you could could tell us how what you were just talking about this kind of um, personal journey of reading McIntyre, yeah. how that connects to um, the past as pilgrimage. Yeah. Well, there's I guess
0: there's there's one more intermediary. Oh, step sure. When, uh, yeah, I mean be, before because I I mean I had um, you know through my undergraduate and graduate years had made these connections with uh, with McIntyre, and in my my first book uh, I kind of put my cards on the table, uh, but you know, I'm dumb but I'm not stupid I, I didn't, that wasn't my first thought, <laughs> so like I'm going to you know, go tell everyone I'm a Catholic, but actually in the, a very kind of bif- difficult editorial process with Johns Hopkins they couldn't understand what I was getting at when I was just doing the analysis, so they said, tell us where you're coming from mm. and, and so, well okay, <laughs> I've got nothing to lose now, and so I did, and actually my the secular editors there said hmm, that's really interesting Excellent.
1: And how you and um, Dr. Bloom came together to, to write this yeah. text? Then, okay. well,
0: and that, that is really uh, where Christendom comes in. Uh, Christendom brought us together. Uh, he was a uh, Chris Bloom was then uh, working at Christendom as the uh, as history professor, chair of the history department. He, he's now at the Augustine Institute out in uh, Colorado. Uh, but I was uh, looking for a job and and uh, interviewed with him, and he was kind of um for both of us, there was this, you know, great moment where like, oh, another historian who has read Alistair MacIntyre <laughs> is actually trying to do history, you know, uh, in a MacIntyrean way. So I think we were both looking for that. And uh, um, when we finally found each other, and so I started working with him there. And we uh, would talk about these things, but really in, in terms of how this book came to be the kind of book uh, that it is, um, it really came out of our discussions, uh, about, our discussions of our teaching, you know, uh, rather than, you know, epistemological or theoretical arguments, like how are we going to tell, uh, uh, in our case, a Catholic story to our students, as opposed to just doing, you know, a Western sequence that you know, maybe highlights the the actions of Catholics more than a Western Civ se- sequence at that, that a secular school was. So it's really uh, kind of hammering these things out in the classroom and trying to think about how we how we can teach the core better. I mentioned uh, before we started here that I just spent the whole morning teaching core, and um, you know, it can be uh, it can be grueling, but it's, it's essential. Uh, remember. A little connection to McIntyre here, and in, in his later years at Notre Dame, he refused to teach upper division classes, Ooh. but but would only teach freshmen. <laughs> uh, and I mean, there's lots of reasons for that. But one is that he really thinks that those uh, those days, those so called introductory classes, they're the most important. I mean, uh, you know, in most institutions today, the big survey classes get you know passed off on. Uh, beginning assistant professors when really, it's the senior people that should be teaching those. The people that have done this for 20 years and have kind of accumulated a, a wisdom as opposed to just simply a knowledge about the past, they're the ones that should be teaching freshmen. Right, And that's, that's one of the, you know, I think the points that Chris and I are trying to make in this is the distinction between wisdom and knowledge and that, you know, we have more information going, uh, about, more knowledge about history than ever before. It's
1: Well, that, yeah, I'm definitely sympathetic with a lot of the points you raised, and I'm hoping that some of our listeners who um, are dealing with those same issues will go ahead and pick the book up. Yeah. So I wonder then if you could, so that that kind of explains the genesis of the book and what you're trying to do. Could you walk us through the, the introduction of the past as pilgrimage?
0: Okay, sure. Um, well, the, uh, the introduction uh, is, is titled Stories to Uphold the Good, and what Chris and I were trying to do at the beginning is first you know, introduce the concept of history as story, um, which is you know, not totally unfamiliar to people, but to, to, I guess, be a little more specific in how we, we approach story. I mean, it's, it's a common complaint uh, today that, well, history has become too analytic and we've lost the ability to tell a good story, but this is a more about it's about more than just telling a good story. Um, it's about the role of kind of narrative in really um, shaping a community and shaping the historical memory and knowledge of a, of a community. Uh, that's not something that academic history does very well. So, in the introduction, to just kind of shake things up a bit. You know, to make it clear to people that we're not just calling for academic historians to write better narratives. Uh, we look at, we, we try to uh, well, you know, first say, look, academic history is a very recent way of, of writing history and a very you know, particular way of understanding the past. Uh, and one that's not particularly tied to, to Christianity anyway. So let's go back and look at some other ways of telling stories about the past. Some other types of writing and some other contexts for uh, telling the story of the past, and so we give uh, two uh, two kind of case studies or examples uh, of "quote unquote" history that, of course, you know, no academic would accept as history. North African Christians in the late uh, antique period. This is the most powerful story about the past that they can imagine. Uh, you know, Saint Augustine wrote many sermons on it, and sometimes he would, you know, he'd have.
1: both these, or these three people, rather, um, St. Louis um, and Perpetua and Felicity, what was it you were trying to capture? I mean, you, you mentioned the community and their role in it, but what is it about them that makes them particularly important uh, areas for historical inquiry?
0: Yeah, well, for, um, uh, for St. Louis, uh, it is what uh, was going on in the kind of memorialization of, of St. Louis was you know, here's here's what it means to be um, a Catholic Christian king, and this this kind of you know, a model of living in the world uh, that was important to to everybody uh, uh, in France. I mean, certainly, very few people are going to be kings, but a king is an essential uh, part of uh, society, of course, and uh, people needed to know that. Uh, holy kingship was possible, especially in the 17th century, when and Christ does a nice job in you know, placing this in the context of a very different kind of king, a rather unsaintly king, uh, of Louis XVI, uh, uh, excuse me, Louis XIV, uh, and that Louis the IX, holiness and sanctity, uh, as a king, not as a, as a monk or just somebody cut out from the world, but as a king living in the world you know, fulfilling his worldly functions, that that was a, a kind of a rebuke uh, to the failings, the moral and spiritual failings of Lewis. In this, uh, the way I interpret this uh, this narrative is that uh, it shows how uh, the you know commitment to Christ, putting Christ first, uh, can often be not.
1: Is on um, Korean martyrs in the, the late oh, yeah. 1700s and into the 1800s. And yeah, yeah family was a, a huge, huge issue.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that we, you know, again, I think we kind of, especially if you're you know, just dealing with the more recent West or something, uh, forget how much, like, the conflict was between family and church. Right. And really, in some ways, like the way I teach the as I stress that, you know, you know, we may be called a conflict between church and state, but the conflict is between dynastic families, you know, who have their land and want to preserve their name and all that, against a church that thinks that it has more authority than they do. And uh, uh, yeah, and I think I would imagine, certainly, when uh, if you're looking at uh, non-Western countries where Christianity is first coming in, that's, I think, the thing that probably strikes them as strange is, what? You mean there's something more than the family? Or that, that this, rel- this belief, whatever this, this thing is that you're you know, telling me, you're saying that that might come between me and my family? Uh, where you know, even the, you know, the, the pagan Romans, of course, always uh, uh, whatever gods they worshipped or something, it was all uh, uh, the, the, idea, the idea that you know, worshipping a god could somehow um, come between you and your family was for a pagan. You know, inconceivable, which is why in the account, you know, Perpetua's father is just pulling his hair out. Like, how to, you know, This isn't a this, this. isn't a choice you have to make. You know, stuff. So yeah, imagine that would be very powerful in, uh, in Korean Catholic history.
1: <laughs> and I think it's uh, this. This introduction, I maybe should have mentioned this when I introduced it. Is really um, is ex- has an excellent title. It's a stories to uphold the good. Yeah. Um, and it sounds to me like that that really fits in with the content. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, and so again, you know, Louis really the Ninth and Perpetual and Felicity are two kind of big living examples of the good. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot that that, that key uh, key component to it. It's not just story; it's not just a certain kind of story about certain kind of people. But it is stories uh, really directed to the good. These are supposed to be, you know, edifying. Uh, they're supposed to give people models on how to live, and. You know, certainly, uh, those of us who have gone through, you know, the academic uh, mill here, uh, are right to be a little aware that we don't. Uh, you know, We're invoking these examples. We're not calling for a kind of a, a simple-minded hagiography. Uh, but still, uh, in the end, uh, the stories we tell about the past should, in some way, uphold uphold the good. That that should be the kind of uh, the purpose of it, even if. Along the way, you know, you you confront uh, and analyze and uh, uh, engage all of the kind of the evil that is certainly uh, present
1: in the past. Right. So I wonder then. So we've we've established um, then this you know one of the most important things about history is to to uphold the good in a sense through these stories. I wonder then if we could move to chapter one, uh, which is entitled "Catholicism and that that noble dream." And that noble dream is in, in quotation marks for our listeners. Yeah,
0: and this is in, in many ways uh, the, the first uh, uh, our first attempt to answer the objections that people especially a story, you know, professional historians might reasonably have to the introduction of stories to the, of all the good, you just want, you know, hagiography or um, just uh, some kind of fluff or something that, you know, passes over the uh, all, all, all the evil uh, in history. Uh, you're turning your back on uh, the tremendous advances made in the, the empirical study of the past. Uh, and, you know, our uh, answer to that charge is no, we're not. Uh, but in order to make that charge successfully, we have to kind of establish our relation to that, you know, professional academic history that has been the authoritative history for the last 150 years or so. And so uh, that's what we do in the first chapter. And the, the, that noble dream—that is in uh, quotation marks—is a reference to two things. First, uh, Peter Novick's uh, very influential book, *That Noble Dream*. I think the subtitle is *The Objectivity Question in, in American uh, Historical Profession*. It was a very, kind of, very uh, influential book. Uh, came out of the '90s. A lot of uh, late '80s, early '90s. A lot of discussion about objectivity and. Uh, that noble dream is the noble dream of objectivity that, that historians could approach the past in something in the way that a physicist approaches the natural world uh, the second reference to that that is um, uh, Novick's own reference point was that that's the title of, a, of an address uh is a story that you know, Chris and I are trying to uh, offer an alternative to. Uh, but how do you shoehorn Catholicism into this um, into this development of history? Uh, is, is there really any kind of conversation going on? And you know, looking a little more closely in ways that Novick didn't, I see that or in this kind of history what Chris and I are trying to do is say uh, we we'll level the playing field if you will okay you know we're talking about
1: sense um to me right to call it and say well you know the, this is why i tell my students i say you know it's impossible for me to be completely objective yeah and so i say you know this is when i do things i feel that i'm particularly unobjective about i tell yeah. them Yeah, <laughs> and i say you know just just so you understand this um so so right so there is this um in a supposedly objective history there are there is, in a sense, uh, still a story, and that story is being told along with its own values. So can you tell us a little more, how did Catholics connect to this, especially with this idea of faithless histories? Okay.
0: Uh, Well, uh, you know, Catholics weren't uh, snoozing during the 19th century, uh, and, uh, you know, realized uh, but this powerful intellectual development that was taking place, and that they had to have some kind of uh, you know, rational response to it. They couldn't simply say, oh, you know, this, this new discipline is, uh, is anti-Catholic, and so we're not going to bother with it. You know, we don't have to deal with it. And um, the, the Church happened to uh, hold a, kind of a trump card in this debate, uh, in that uh, the Church, particularly the Pope, uh, had something called the Vatican Archives were a tremendous resource to uh, many uh, historians. That is, if you're telling the story of the rise of the nation-state from underneath <laughs> the church, you know you're going to need documentation that only the church has, uh, because the church was, you know, uh, centrally involved in this uh, in this conflict. And so, the post, particularly Leo the Thirteenth. Uh, Better known for uh, his great social encyclical and Novarum," that popes are they're in a kind of a tough position. Wait a minute. Um, people want to use our resources, our archives, but if they do, they're probably going to use it against us as more kind of you know fodder for uh, attacking the church. If we uh, let them, if we grant them access, then. They're going, you know, they're going to uh, attack us. If we don't grant them access, they're going to say, see, this proves our point. You know, the Church is authoritarian uh, against free inquiry and all that. And Louis, uh, uh, me, Louis, uh, Leo very bravely decides, well, look, if, if we really believe that we are the truth, then in the end, we don't have anything to fear from the use of reason in the study of the past. And so he opens the archives uh, to non-Catholic scholars. Uh, and the story that some of these non-Catholic scholars draw from the archival material is a lot more complicated. You know, it's still uh, often you know, the histories are uh, slanted against the church, but uh, the, you know, the the real historical record actually does, to, to some degree, soften the uh, the general popular anti-Catholicism, uh, anti-Catholic attitudes of many of the, the scholars. But that's you know. That's all well and good, but Louis says, "Well, that's that's not quite enough. We need a little something more. Than, I mean, you know, we need to be to be able to do more than simply, you know, take a good punch or something." That he said, we also need to kind of call up uh, scholars of our own uh, that can use this material.
1: We're trying to, to do this, and you were, like you said, trying to do it for traditions of the Church, what happens in the United States?
0: Yeah, um, that's uh, a, a little bit of the same and, and, and a little bit of the different, uh, a little bit different. Um, certainly, uh, Catholic scholars in the United States uh, are observing these developments in uh, in Europe, and in, in some ways kind of trying to follow the lead of uh, of. Leo and and other Catholic scholars in Europe in making the most of these new uh, scholarly techniques. Uh, But the American situation is a little different. Uh, In Europe, uh, late 19th century Europe, uh, the the Church is engaged in a real war with uh, many of uh, the nation states at the time, particularly uh, France, Third Republic France, again notoriously anti-Catholic. And so if, if, you're, if you're a Catholic and caught in that war, you, know, you have to take a side. Uh, are, you, are you for the church or are you for the nation state? And someone like a pastor was going to clearly take the side of the church. Uh, in America, it's a little different. There certainly is lots of anti-Catholicism. In the late 19th century, that maybe wasn't too problematic, but that did sow the seeds for some some problems later, where uh, you could say nationalism or being American and being Catholic would uh, come into uh, more direct um, confrontation with each other. Right. Right. So, so chapter
1: one, it feels like you've kind of um, you and Doctor Bloom have managed to you've kind of identified an issue, a problem that Catholics have to deal with. And in Chapter 2, the historian's craft and the Catholic tradition, it seems like, um, at least as I understood, this is where you're kind of giving your solution.
0: Yeah, the um, chapter, chapter 1 is a little more you know, critical, negative, it's like, kind of, here's, here's the problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, academic history is something that we must work through. You know, we can't pretend it never happened, we can learn from it, but if, if we're going to do something more than just, uh, say, you know, a history of Catholics, uh, if we're going to do a Catholic history rather than just a history of Catholics, then we need to look back to the tradition, uh, earlier parts of the tradition. Before there was uh, you know, a, a, an academic historical profession, uh, because that's when you had uh, kind of a uh, uh, Catholic history that was uh, clearly uh, and robustly uh, unapologetically Catholic. And so here, uh, I think most of uh, Chapter 2 is, is uh, more the work of uh, Chris Bloom, uh, doing, working with material that he's more familiar with. He holds up. Uh, kind of two Catholic historians, but neither of whom would be, you know, certainly recognized as historians by today's academic profession. Uh, but he looks back to the 17th century French uh, writer Jacques-Ménie Bossuet of uh, uh, perhaps in this context best known for his discourse on universal history, uh, and then uh, the writings of I think I'm uh, better known uh, Colonel John Henry Nelman, uh, Blessed John Henry Nelman, uh, and particularly his work on the Church of the Fathers, and he uses these both as kind of models for uh, for history writing, and Tell a story within uh, that big uh, picture. He you can cites Newman's um, Church of the Fathers, particularly uh, Newman's account of the, um, uh, the really tragic story of the relation between two saints, uh, Basil of Caesarea and Gregory Nazianzen. And uh, there in his account, which, you know, is pretty much just his account of Newman's account, uh, you really get a sense of how, uh, you know, Christian history has, you know, rich material for tragedy. And, you know, telling the story, telling a dramatic story that upholds the good is not simply, you know, whitewashing the past or anything. There's a, there's a two saints that were, uh, you know, at times at each other's throats, eventually do reconcile, but, um, you know, all of the, the highs and lows and, um, uh, you know, tragic happenings that we associate with with great grand history. You now, these these are all there uh, within uh, Christian history itself, and in the hands of a, of a great writer and thinker like Newman, uh, you know, they can be rendered uh, in a way that, that tells the story of the faith.
1: Oh, excellent, excellent. So. Um no, that makes a lot of sense. So again, it's just this, this kind of idea of telling stories from a Catholic perspective. Um, and th- that to me seems like, um, maybe I misread it but to me, that seems like the first half of the chapter. I wonder, um, if, I, if it's okay, I wanted to read a quote from the chapter. Okay. On uh, page 91, um, there's the quote, When the historian's labor has been specified as the exercise of right judgment upon the data of the past for the sake of the formation of the virtue of right judgment in his audience, the dependence of the historian's craft upon the science of ethics is clear. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could comment a, a little bit about that to, for our listeners.
0: Yeah. Um, that, uh, basically, if you're, you know, judgment, there's different kinds of judgment. Certainly one, what the kind of judgment historians are, are used to making is like judging uh, matters of causality, relative causality. Well, you know, how can, how did this, did that happen? Like, you know, what's the cause of World War One? Well, there's a lot of factors and, you know, in, in the end, in weighing different factors, you have to come to Is wrong. This is an outrage, and so I'm going to, you know, uh, indict these evildoers for, for the wrong they're doing. But um, so often, this sense of right and wrong is is not very uh, deeply articulated. It is just a kind of a, an assertion, uh, largely an assertion of the common sense of today uh, against uh, what is seen as the uh, you know, the benighted sensibility of the past um, and, you know in, in calling for judgment and then, you know, Chris realizes that well, it's uh, you know, we're, we're skirting in dangerous territory here, you don't want um, history to kind of descend to the level of just a moral diatribe or something or a finger wagging or something, but if you're uh, if, in this case, like, if, if judgment is unavoidable, and I think you know, any look at secular history books show that it is unavoidable. There's judgments being made everywhere. If it's unavoidable, then it needs to be done correctly. And if, it needs, if it's going to be done correctly, you need education in the science of ethics. And if you're going to reject that, then what we have, then historical judgment just comes down to assertion of my moral preferences. Uh, and he's trying to. Uh, we're both trying to kind of raise uh, the level of judgment uh, above that. Though so sadly, that's pretty much what uh, the level at which historical judgment is today. Right, right. So then,
1: so established here that a, a good um, or a, a Catholic historiography should be taking into account stories that uphold the good. They're told dramatically and help the, the audience to um, to live the good, to make right decisions. And sure. chapter. Um, I'm sorry. No, I it, it didn't say. Anything. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. And then in chapter three, saints, sinners, and scholars—you pick up with uh, Eamon Duffy, who I guess is a—it seems is an exemplar of this approach.
0: Um, yeah, uh, and and the well, uh, I, I'd say you know, to be fair, what—and this is the chapter that I worked on more—that um, what he's primarily an exemplar of somebody though eventually English people will kind of come to accept the new theology as their own but ultimately he sees it as a kind of a triumph of local community that's what people didn't want to give up uh, and they were willing to ultimately kind of go along with whatever uh, religion or kind of church that the the powers that be um, wanted them to but it wasn't again you know through, through craven motivations or right? anything, but through, through very good ones. Uh, and that, you know, in terms of dramatic narrative, I think that's, you know, you really get the sense of this, this history as a tragedy. Um, because, from Duffy's Catholic perspective, you know, now from, again, from a, from a non-Catholic perspective, this can just be the story of progress. Uh, from a certain Catholic perspective, this can be just simply the story of decline. Oh, they apostatized, those 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 heretics, they deserve what they get. But for, for, in Duffy's dramatic narrative, it is a tragedy, because it's a conflict between two goods, which is, like to, to me, really the, like the essence of tragedy. It's the good of fidelity to the church, and the good of fidelity to your community, your local community, and the tragedy of that period is that you couldn't have both in England. Right. Okay.
1: Yeah, excellent. I, I, that's, that was my sense as I, I got this chapter. I think that, that came through very well. Here was this this sense of tragedy, in that, um, I being a writing history from a Catholic perspective isn't simply just, um, like you said, it's not just a story of, well, these were the good guys, these were the bad guys yeah, who apostatized yeah. it. There is this sense of human moral frailty and of the difficult choices human beings living in history sometimes have to make, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, I certainly appreciated that. Okay. And um in chapter 4 you're you're moving to someone right that's that's not a professional historian uh pope yeah. Benedict <laughs> the 16th yeah, He so had he's another job he had professor. a job. Yeah. <laughs> um I wonder I thought this was really creative to to look at how a pope is um talking about uh hagiography.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's um chapter 4 is uh that's that's more of Chris's work but he does you know I think uh, very provocatively but you know this is how we structured it after you know spending a chapter showing hey here's how you know a a real kind of a credentialized professional historian can do it uh, then we say well and here's how somebody who's not a credentialized historian Is when he looks at you know, the, the problems and divisions within the church, he says that the, res- the best best response to this is not to, you know, kind of lay down the law and doctrine once again, uh, but to tell the story of the church, to retell the story of the church, remind people of the story of the church through the saints. Not through the development of doctrine, but through the lives of the saints. Because these are the people that are, they are Christ for the various ages. They are the face of Christ in time. And if we want to see the face of Christ over time, we have to look to the saints.
1: Excellent. right? I, this was, I really enjoyed this chapter, and like I say, it, it was a surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <yep. laughs> so I, I wonder then if you could then... Uh, We've gone through the, the introduction, the four chapters of the book. I wonder if you could bring us then through the conclusion.
0: Uh, yeah, this, uh, the, the conclusion is uh, pretty much kind of the way forward, uh, if you will, and a kind of a maybe a you know a restatement of our general principles. Uh, and uh, but then offering also uh, uh, some kind of analogous models, if you will, that building a bit on, um, particularly Chris's chapter on uh, Benedict and his emphasis on the saints, we kind of pr- propose, in many ways, uh, the saint's life as a way to start, as kind of a model or a genre, for this new Catholic history uh but, you know, Saint's life that is not going to simply be hagiography. Uh, that's going to be uh something like Benedict's very, very short uh Saints Lives, although you know, Chris acknowledges like, well, as historians, you know, we, we, we need to work in a bit more of a, a longer format, if you will. But it'll be, you know, take Benedict's uh, seeing the face of Christ in history type of model. Uh, seeing it through the saints and beefing that up a bit with a kind of a history that's you know a little more that reflects a little more uh, of um, you know kind of modern scholarship and such and. Catholics can start writing a kind of saint's life that uh, uh, you know relates to its material in something. to kind of take
1: up uh, the task. Well, I found it uh, certainly very inspiring, and I hope that our, our listeners will too. Well,
0: uh, thank you, Frank. I'm <laughs> glad that you did it. And I certainly uh, hope as well that uh, there's others out there to uh, yeah,
1: stretch the court with. Well, I, I think there will be. Well, now, we, we've taken up a, a lot of your time, so I'd like to end by asking the traditional New Books Network question. <laughs> what are you working on now? Okay. Uh,
0: well, as a matter of fact, I am. It's uh, uh, I'm trying to figure out if it's really responding to the call that uh, Chris and I have just given, but <laughs> I think it is, actually. Uh, it's a it's a, uh, a study of four Catholic thinkers, um, the uh, Romano Guardini, Henri de jean and Jacques Mariton, four kind of early to mid-century Catholic thinkers that uh, were really, in many ways, the kind of in- uh, inspiration and architect for Vatican II, and, uh, and, and offered, uh, I think, a, a distinctively Catholic path through modernity. The, the, the name of the, the kind of the title of the book is "The Salvation of the Nations: uh, Catholic Modernity in an Age of Confessional Liberalism." So I think some of those words you can uh, maybe get the connection to uh, the is pilgrimage that. Uh, I'm trying to put these thinkers in a broader intellectual context—not just church thinkers, but but modern thinkers—and and understand that context is not so much a secular one, but a confessional one, although a different kind of confession: this, you know, uh, liberalism, uh, modern liberalism that has really uh, a kind of a, a deep spiritual worldview and a set of non-negotiable faith commitments and such uh, that has largely dominated or determined public life in the West. And the way I want to present these thinkers is to show them, not only as you know, Catholic thinkers dealing with problems specific to Catholicism in, uh, in that half-century leading up to Vatican II, but also see them as thinkers who tried to stake a claim for Catholicism in public life. That's, you know, uh, for them, you know, their, their agenda was not simply to reform the Church, but they had the agenda, which, which all Christians should have, to reform the world to bring the world to Christ. Uh, Vatican II was about speaking to the world, bringing Christ to the world, and that's, I think, something that's strangely uh, often been lost. That uh, um, you know, Catholics, you know, liberal versus conservative Catholics, they're still fighting uh, amongst themselves over what direction the church should take. And Christ has kind of got lost in that, <laughs> that, uh, that's, you know, forgotten that what the council calls us to do is to bring Christ to the world, not to advance a liberal or conservative agenda. And that's what, uh, I see in these thinkers, uh, a, you know, kind of aspect of their thought that has, uh, that has kind of got lost. And so in doing a history of these four great Catholic thinkers, uh, I want, you know, I, in a sense, want to use the history to bring Christ to the world. I mean, it's, to anyone, you know, reading uh, the lives and the thought of these thinkers is, you know, is seeing something at the face of Christ. None of them are canonized saints, uh, uh, but at least in terms of intellectuals, they're about as saintly as you can get uh, in the 20th century. And so, uh, in writing this book, I want to both address, the, you know, a real, problem that is of concern to anyone uh, who's interested in 20th century thought, that is, you know, what is the nature of eternity, Uh, and look at that through these thinkers, but then also at the same time, uh, do something that is, I'd say, distinctly Catholic, that is uh, bring the face of Christ to the world through these very holy and, and brilliant men who tried to do that during their lives.
1: That sounds like a fascinating book, and maybe when it's complete and published, we can get you on here again if you'd like. I'd be happy to. Oh, good deal. Well, thank you again for taking so much time to talk with us today. Have a great day. Thank you very much for listening to this interview of the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Uh, Have a great day, and hope to hear from you again.